we are particularly talking about history through the eyes of a Christian believer. You mentioned Dark Age Man, which I believe is one of the new Marvel episodes that are coming out. Are you serious? No. Homoousius. In unison. Homoousius. That's the reason that I teach this, is I feel like we all should be aware of history because it informs the way we approach every day. This is History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast with Angie Ferris. I'm your host, Frank Grange Jr., along with producer Wes. Make sure you check the link in our bio for our Ko-fi page. This is a great place to support the podcast, get more information and reference material, ask questions, make comments, and even chat with us. We're glad you're here. Hey, it's Frank Grange Jr., not to be confused with a senior, with producer Wes and Angie Ferris. Of them all. <laughs> no, you don't just say of them all. <laughs> it's supposed to rhyme with Wes and Ferris. Um, yeah, I did that before and I wanted to do it again. I wanted to make a rhyme and I just tried to do that just then. Hey, you found episode 96 of History of the Eyes of Faith. Thanks for jumping in. And if you haven't listened to the other episodes, go catch up on that or not. Listen to this one and keep going or go back. Whatever you want to do, <clears throat> they're better if you listen from one in sequential because this is history. You know, you want to learn about things in an order because that's the point of talking about history. I mean, and you know, in some cases, not yeah, every you know, case. People don't usually think about it that way, but I think that it's obviously we think about it that way because we're doing this. But so much of the history we know is just like, oh, in 1727, something, something, something. But we don't know what happened in 1684 and in 1755, and we don't have the context. Right. So, so this is giving you context. It's, it's like just quoting a verse of scripture out of context. And right? we're somewhere around the 12th century, right? Yes, well, 13th. Yeah, 12th, 13th century. We're around the 12th century. <laughs> we're around it. Yeah, we're just yeah. around the corner from it. <laughs> yeah, we are nearby. <laughs> so um, we were just talking. I have something that I found that popped up on the news on an, on an app that tells you the latest headlines. Oh. And I saw it this morning. And it's not even a head. It's just a commentary. It's an editorial. And I thought, that has a lot to do with what we do on the podcast I'm going to talk about that, and I'm going to read the article, and I'm going to talk about it, how it applies to today. And I started reading the article, and I'm like, I got to really read this. Like, this is going to take a while. I'm not prepared. Yeah. Now, I can talk about the, the news article, but I can save it, too. Okay. Until I read it. Because we were talking about something else. Yeah. While we were waiting to get all the... While we were waiting to get, get all everything the, plugged in and hooked up. We were talking about... Frank, sorry, tell me a funny story. We... We, you know, share on here different things that we're doing outside of recording and our lives. And one of those things that everybody does is stream TV shows and series and episodic television and Netflix, Hulu, HBO Max, Apple, all the things. We get caught up on what we're enjoying. And I have not been able to stay with a a series. Mm-hmm. Like I started one called The Juror, which did you hear about that? Did we talk about that? Mm-mm. Not that I remember. I, it's on Amazon Prime, I believe. It is a docu series on an 
actual trial. And it is the story, it is following the jurors that are picked for jury duty, how they were picked, their comments on the trial as they're listening to the evidence and the attorneys. However, only one person, (laughs) everybody are actors except for one guy. And he doesn't know that. And he doesn't know that. Because I'm saying you're not supposed to talk so about thing, what's right, happening. So here's the thing. How, how do you not, how do you, I, I heard the concept and I'm like, this has got to be dumb. Like, how are you not going to know these are actors? I watched the first two episodes. You didn't know which one it was. No, they make a point to tell you. You're uh-huh. in on it. It's like yeah. watching Candid Camera. Right. For those younger people, that was a show before <laughs> Practical Jokers. It's like you're watching Candid Camera. Right. And you know, and it's well done. The actors that they have playing all these eccentric characters in the jury are really pulling it off. Like, you can kind of think this is real. Like, this lady really is falling asleep, and mm-hmm. I'm going to have to keep her awake. Right. Anyway, that's not what I, we were talking about before. But no. the, I've only watched two episodes of that, but I can't. It's like, I can't. So Frank's having trouble getting into the episodes. I'll try to find something that's, that's quick. Shorter. Shorter. So I found this one that's, <laughs> you're laughing. I found this one that's just four episodes, and it's like number two on Netflix streaming right now. I told him we had to go back and talk about this because it was so funny. And it's called Missing uh, Dead or Alive. Instead of like Wanted Dead or Alive, it's Missing, missing Dead or Alive. <laughs> And it's it's not a comedy. <laughs> it's a crime drama reality docuseries about uh, this police force, well, these investigators in Columbia, South Carolina, and whatever the county is in those areas that are responding to people missing filing a missing person whatever, report. report. And they're investigating... Uh, these missing person reports and but what's what I'm intrigued by not only is it's good it's interesting but I'm intrigued by how are they filming this because in real time in real time like like they go to somebody's house and they ring the doorbell and they're like we're here to ask you about this yeah and there's a camera crew there wow and the person's not like why are you filming me at least they edited that out if they're doing that yeah they probably have to get them to sign a release right but then how do they Anyway, I was telling her that it's, you know, it's very well put together and edited and there's, and you know, it's four episodes. And I think across the four episodes, there might be six different cases because you might end one and on the same show, start a new one. Right. Um, it's well done. Oh, and by the way, I didn't tell this part of the story. One of the lead investigators is Vicki Raines, R-A-I-N-S. Uh-oh. Our cousin, and she is uh, out of Nebraska first before she came to South Carolina. So she's like one of the lead investigators. And I guess what was correct. I don't. I don't get how they're interviewing suspects. Yeah, like, like there's one guy. They arrest him for the reason they arrested him was for selling his mom's house that he didn't own. Because she's missing. And his ex-wife was the one that was concerned about she didn't know where she was. Where the mom where the mom, where the mom was. Her former mother-in-law. Oh, he sold her house on Facebook Marketplace. Sold her 
it's on Facebook Marketplace. And people driving up to put new carpet in because carpet has been ripped out of the house and there's bleach everywhere <laughs> and an air mattress that the mom was sleeping on had blood on it. <laughs> and they can't find the mom. But guess what? She was alive. Why did I think she, where was she? She, I think she was homeless. Well, obviously. <laughs> but, but she, she got out of she there. She just wandered off. No, I, I don't, here's what I think happened. At least what they lead you to believe happened. He took her to the hospital to say, you need to get back on your meds. But I think he was trying to make people think she was crazy so that he could take money from her or get her in a hospital or something right. and get her out. Right. But he really was just being manipulative. And so when he dropped her off at the hospital, she was telling them, I'm not, I'm okay. I don't want to be around him. And he leaves. And of course, everybody, you're watching this show going, oh, well, he just took her off somewhere and murdered her and just claims that she wandered away from the hospital. You know what she did? What? Wandered away from the hospital. <laughs> she just left. Yeah, she left and just was starting a new life. This, you know, it's just like, like when you're looking at history, it's very interesting that now everybody's history is recorded. There's recordings of everything. Everybody oh. has a camera in their pocket. Oh, so, but hold on. I know what you're talking about being recorded. So they they talk about how they they talk about how all the pieces go together, but they arrest him for trying to sell his mom's house. But then he gets out on bond, and they're interviewing him. And I'm like, how are they interviewing a guy who obviously killed his mom? <laughs> I, I mean, this is before you know that she's not dead. No, it was a shocker. <laughs> she was like, did they just pan the camera and there she was? Yes. <laughs> well, the, the investigator Vicky Rains. She, uh, they get a, they get a call from the bank of a lady calling to try to get a new account and says her name. You're like, that's not really her. That's his, that's his girlfriend posing as her to get access to her account. It was her name. It was yeah. the mom's name. Yeah. But it really was her calling the bank. She said, we need your driver's license. Well, I don't have my driver's license. I'm like, this is just somebody trying to steal her identity. Some kind of tip. Vicky was going to go to some part of town thing where that call came from. And she's like, I think that's her. I think that's her. And they turn the camera, and there she is, walking down the street. And I'm like, oh, my. But he still got arrested for selling her house. Yeah, and he was crazy, too. He was, well, he was, on, he was on some stuff. Um, but you're talking about tracking and video. One of the other cases was a guy. <laughs> Y'all watch the show. Don't watch it now, I guess. Spoiler alert. Uh, was a guy who... Won a he won the lottery. He won ten thousand. He got a ten thousand dollar lottery ticket, and then he disappeared. So his truck was found abandoned, and I won't go into all of that because it was very odd the way they. It, it, it didn't look like he was robbed. It just looked like he was. It was abandoned. Um, but they pinged his cell phone. And they knew where everywhere he went. Mm -hmm. They were following him all mm -hmm. over the city. Where mm -hmm. he went over here, went over here, and why is he over here? And then he went down here, and then he went over here, and it was just they were they were showing on the map all the antenna triangulation of where the phone mm -hmm. would have pinged mm -hmm. off of. 
And they knew everywhere he went, and they were like, well, this is very strange. And so I'm starting to think somebody hijacked, somebody had uh, had him you know, at gunpoint or something and was making him go all these places. Now, that wasn't it. I won't give away what happened. They know it all. But, yeah, Angie thought it was funny that I was clearly convinced this guy killed his mom, <laughs> and then she showed up. <laughs> Just walking down the street. I mean, they had pulled out carpet. Out of the house in just one room. The smell of bleach throughout the house. <laughs> set it up. And a and an air no, they weren't and that's the thing is the show is when they're when they're recording or video and we're way into this episode. Not even about true crime. It's about <laughs> history through the eyes of faith. Yeah. So All cut. right. Cut it. Cut to screen, cut to screen one or whatever. We're going, we're going to go. Somewhere. We were episode 96, episode 95 in this podcast, not true crime podcast. <laughs> in this podcast, 95, we talked about uh, Venice and Genoa, mm -hmm. Italy. Am I saying that right? Mm -hmm. Genoa. Mm -hmm. And um, we talked about how they, they created some governments in there, almost like communes, almost like. Uh, there were democracies. There were the first democracies, not the first. Return to Democracy. And then, I love that movie. And then we segued over to Capitalism. Mm-hmm. And then after Capitalism, I don't remember. No, that was it. Okay. So it was about freedom. It was about freedom. And the roots of all of that, what the point that Rodney Stark was making, began was talked about in the previous episode as well, the one before that, that it's... The Christian view of free will and the Christianized society, Christendom, that created the environment that allowed democracy and capitalism to grow. And, the, and we talked about how the word freedom didn't even exist in the languages of other religions. So the point. One of the points that we're trying to make in that overview, there's a lot of interesting details. It's interesting to learn about how these things came about. We talked a lot about the monasteries becoming estates and they were part of the feudal system and how those, um, you know, all of that came together. Outside of, there's interesting details. There's an overarching idea that the church was foundational in that. The theology of Christianity was foundational in all of that. Okay. So that's a theme that. If you were to peel it back, there could be a debate. And I just say debate because there's going to be people that say that's not true. I don't know. I'm not. I'm, a debate that there is a, a viewpoint. I'm going to say there is a belief and a viewpoint that Christianity is a foundation underneath capitalism and freedom and free will. To me, when you say belief and viewpoint, that sounds like a, just a faith, like a belief being a faith. This is no. like evidence. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't mind. I'm not trying to say that it's not evidence. Yeah, I'm saying the, the, that there is, could there be someone, could there be someone in today's culture that is not a believer in any faith and maybe even anti-faith period. Period. That say, oh no, there's no way that. Well, the sure they could say that, but I'm, you don't have to be a believer in the faith to see the evidence for the support of it. 
Okay. Okay. I'm just going to play saying, devil's advocate and say, okay, there's evidence, but I'm, I don't agree with you. Do you think that exists? I think that they would be telling a different version of history. And I don't think that, and that's out there. I, this is a thought I've had in the last few weeks. It's, so I'm always reflecting on current events and comparing that to what we're talking about and thinking about those things. Whatever view of history you have, what you believe to be about true about history, whatever that is, if you believe this happened and that happened and this caused this and we're like this because of that, whatever that is that you believe, there is somebody who believes the opposite. There's somebody who believes a completely different version of history. Okay. That's true right now. I don't know if that's always been true, but I know that's true now. Whatever your view is, there's somebody who has a very different view. So how they would stack together the facts that Rodney Stark lays out to come up with that conclusion, I don't know. Okay? But we have those facts now that we can look at and enter into discussion with somebody with. Okay? And you can argue that point if you want to argue about it. Okay. I don't, you know. No, no, no. I just... Yes, there's always going to be different views. But to me, it has to do with your building blocks. If you start with this set of blocks and this set of assumptions, then what are you going to build on and build on and build on, right? Or, yeah. And I want to be somebody who's always willing to go back and to go deep, you know? Mm -hmm. And to say, okay, well, let's peel this back or let's peel that back and see what's underneath there. And be open to whatever we yeah. find. And in the process of doing that, I've found more evidence for the roots of Western civilization being grounded in Judeo-Christian ideals. Yeah. Okay. You know? Yeah, I'm just putting it out there because I believe that there will be somebody sure. that says, uh eh. Right. And so my only thing... By the way, there was a gesture that went with, uh, there was a gesture. (laughs) Eh. That's what she responded to was a gesture. Eh, Forget about it. And my thing is that that's always going to be the case. And and that's good because we want to think. What I want to encourage everybody to do is think. Peel it back. Why do you think about things the way you do? And where did that come from? That's that's why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this. this. Okay. So now... Moving on, right? So when we left, um, those that discussion about uh, Venice, Genoa, capitalism, that was on or around about the 12th and 13th century as we're talking. Um, we also then, I'm trying to call it back, the previous episode, was it the previous episode that was all about, uh, what was the one before that? That's the one that? I'm getting confused. That we just we're just about to we're the episode before that we're just about to release. Yes. It has to do with the uh, architecture and free will. Right. So that was that was cathedrals and chapels yeah. and and so all all of that information for those two episodes which would be 94 and 95, right? Mm-hmm. Are kind of um in the time period but not necessarily in a timeline. Right, because we're sitting there talking about ideas, and we're looking back. The previous episode, I believe, was Innocent the Third. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so when we go back to that, we're dealing with his lifespan. So we're going to kind of pick up on a with events that are happening contemporaneously with Innocent the Third. Okay, and we kind of left this hanging. We're going to talk about a particular event. So we're jumping back over to England. We're going into English history. 
So um, can I make a comment? Yes, because you're about to get right into it, right? Right. Yes. I'm just making a comment that I have been thinking about this podcast over the last I don't know several episodes as like a course that you would take in school, like in college, and that when you come into class, this hour is your class. Mm-hmm. Because I think it, I think it could be. I mean, I think this is a class that you could take, and now you're in in the ninety sixth class, so you're going to take it for a while. Yeah. I mean, if you're taking it twice a week, it's not going to take that long. But point is, I would like to go to a class that the first ten fifteen minutes is just messing around <laughs> before you get into it. <laughs> like I'm going to get into class because I don't want to miss the first ten minutes because that's the fun part. And then yeah. we're going to talk about See, the other stuff. See, that's the thing. It's just the difference. But some people feel like that the part that's mm-hmm. most fun for them is the content, not the... Well, but they have to understand. I'm coming from a perspective that I don't care about the content. <laughs> I just want to I just want to mess around. Okay, so... All right, go ahead. Now we're going in. We're going into English history. Right. An event that was happening around the time of Innocent III. Yes. Can I guess what it is? No, not yet. In a minute, you can. I'm going to give you a little background. So, you remember we talked about Richard the Lionheart? Mm-hmm. Do you remember who his father was? Mm, I think it was Kevin. It was Henry II. King Henry II. And so, this is just a comment, and, and most of the material for this episode is coming from different episodes of different courses on Wondrium, which is the streaming service of the great courses. Okay. And this particular <laughs> That sounded like that sounded like something in history that we've talked about, which was the streaming service of the great courses. So so you can do the great courses where you purchase courses or you can pay for the streaming She's service. She's talking about an internet right resource. So the the streaming service is called Wondrium. And okay. so I looked up several different programs with several different episodes. This come from, comes from the program. One of the ones we're using in this episode is called The High Middle Ages. Okay. And the, the lecturer there is Philip Dayleader. Okay. And he says about King Henry II, who was Richard the Lionheart's, uh, Richard the Lionheart's father. Father. That he was plagued by two problems. His humiliation by the murder of Thomas Becket. Remember we talked about that? That was Thomas Becket, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury. Who, that was back during the whole idea where do kings appoint bishops? You know, not back then. That's going on throughout in the Middle Ages. Do the kings appoint the bishop? Does the Pope appoint the bishop? And Henry appointed Thomas Becket because he was his friend and he thought he'd help him out. And then Thomas Becket starts really taking it to heart and supporting the church, Henry makes an offhanded comment. I wish, will no one rid me of this priest? And then four of his knights go and murder him. And then his shrine becomes a source of pilgrimage. We've talked about all that before. We did talk Remember about that. Remember that? Okay. I don't, that's, but we did talk about that's it. That's Henry II. Okay? okay. So he has two problems. His humiliation by the murder of Thomas Becket. And he ends up having to do penance and be whipped in public and all this stuff for that. And his poor relations with his wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and his various sons. So his bad family relations that are going on with his wife and all of his sons, because we know one of his sons was Richard. There's, do you remember who the son is that we left on the throne after Richard? You remember? I don't. Okay, his name's John. All right. So some more information is going to be coming from the story of medieval 
England that from King Arthur to the Tudor Conquest. That's another course we're and that author or lecturer is Jennifer Paxton. Okay. And here's what she says about John. She said, like Stephen, which we haven't talked about Stephen, but the name John and then Stephen is one of the only two kings in English history, those two, to have no successor named after him. Like there wasn't a John the Second or a Stephen the Second. Interesting. Why? For one thing, John came to the throne because they weren't somebody you wanted to be named after. Okay. For one thing, John came to the throne under circumstances that were less than ideal. There was some doubt as to his right to succeed Richard when Richard died, given that the brother between them in age, Jeffrey, had a son that he had left behind. Jeffrey was deceased, but his son Arthur was not. So it would, do you go to John or do you go to Arthur? They both had a claim to the throne. John had three, advant three advantages over Arthur, though. And this is not Arthur of King Arthur. No, this, but he was named that because his mom wanted him to have a claim to the throne. And she knew everybody. This was during the time when the French guy was writing all the, you know, when the Arthur legend was becoming a really big deal. Okay. And so the mom was like, yeah, we're going to name him Arthur. That'll make him more likely to inherit the throne. It right? didn't work. didn't work. Well, so John had three advantages over Arthur, however. Richard had designated John as his heir before he died, not Arthur. John had the backing of their mother, Eleanor, and John was an adult while Arthur was only 12 years old. Okay. When Richard dies, right? But John becomes king. Normandy and England supported John, but Anjou supported Arthur. Now, one thing about this Eleanor of Aquitaine and Who things, supported Arthur? It's, a, it's an area of France called Anjou. And it goes with the French dip? <laughs> it probably does. One thing about this, El this marriage between Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine was in that marriage and in the subsequent years, Henry II acquired large portions. Aquitaine is an area in France. Anjou is an area in France. He acquired even more than Normandy. That was Normandy plus huge areas of France. But he's the British king. Okay? So... This area of France is supporting Arthur rather than, and they are subjects of the British king, okay? Arthur rather than um, John. But John acted quickly, seizing the treasury of this place in France. And then Arthur took refuge with Philip of France. So you remember how it was Philip and Richard that were going back and forth all the time, king of France, king of England going on. Oh, okay. So obviously Philip of France would prefer that the English Kings didn't have all this land in his country. Right. And so Arthur takes refuge with Philip of France, who of course backed Arthur on principle since he was from France, France. He still wanted control of England's, England's lands in France. Philip is going for that for the next few years few years there were some very complicated military and diplomatic maneuvers until finally in 1202 arthur fell into john's hands for good and then simply disappeared he hmm. was doubtless murdered some suspected by john himself which did not help john's reputation well maybe he was just starting a new life like the lady on yeah, the show just walking down the street no there he, he was never seen from again so they're pretty sure John, at he least. Was never, he was never seen from. Heard from, seen, no walking down the, none of that. He's out of the picture. Okay. 
So you want to guess at the event yet? Are you there yet? Do you know? No, I don't know the event. No. Okay. I thought I was, I know we're going to get to this other thing at some point. So I, was, I think it was going to be this, but it's not. Okay. So John's reputation is just getting worse. The rest of John's reign was dominated by three major and overlapping conflicts with three major op- opponents, one being Pope Innocent III, one being King Philip of France, and the other being his own barons. Okay? Now, we have discussed John's conflict with Pope Innocent III. Do you remember that? What it was? Was it on the episode about Innocent? Yes. That I don't remember it, <laughs> but I'm, it'll come back to me when you bring it up. So it's over that appointment of the archbishop. This was when the arch, I think this is when, I'm going to get this right. Yeah, this is when the monks of Canterbury went ahead and elected somebody without letting the king know. And they sent the guy they elected to get the approval of the pope. But the guy had a big mouth and he told people what was going on when he wasn't supposed to. So the king found out. So the king nullified that election and sent his own person. And then they appealed to the pope and Innocent said, I don't want either of them. I'm going to appoint my friend, Stephen Langton, who was my colleague at the University of Paris when I was there. Why are you laughing? I'm going to appoint my friend, Stephen Langton, because he was blazing. Uh, it just reminds me of something from Step Brothers. Okay. So the point- Stephen Langton, like, we've got Richard the Lionhearted, Innocent the Third, and Stephen Langton. It was just a normal. <laughs> VP of sales. <laughs> he was one of his colleagues. Okay. <laughs> Account executive Stephen Langton. That's right. We're going to take over the French countryside along with Richard the Lionhearted. Well, he ends up making as big or bigger an impact than any of those other people that you know. Okay, it's just, go ahead. Okay, so he gets appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. Mm-hmm. That's who innocent. But John refuses to accept him. And that's when the kingdom gets put under interdict and all of this awful stuff happens. Mm-hmm. And and I've got more details on inter. When a, when a kingdom is put under interdict, that means that masses can't be celebrated. I fun- remember this now. Funerals can't gonna, be celebrated. Everybody was upset because then they're going to be excommunicated. And Mar- and well, you can't this do is the be- sacraments. This, this is before excommunication. Excommunication means you're not a part of the church at all. Right. But, if but you can't interdict do means that throughout the whole country, they can't marry. They can't have mass. They can't do funerals. And so people were rising up and putting pressure on John. And finally, John succumbed and he ended up having giving the Pope feudal rights over England. That was part of the thing that happened with Innocent III. So that's John's conflict. But Stephen Langton ends up Archbishop of Canterbury. Okay. Okay. So now we come to John's conflicts with Philip. You said there were three things. Three. John's reign was dominated by three major and overlapping conflicts. And one was the, what we just talked about. With Philip, with, uh, with Stephen, Innocent III. Innocent III. Now we're talking about Philip. Yes. And then we're going to talk about a third one. Right. But what's the event? We're getting to it. Okay. I just want to make sure we weren't... I was losing... I, I the event know. is going to be involved in the third conflict. Okay. 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 So the second conflict is with this relationship with Philip, who's the king of France. Okay. Right. And we know 
that it was just the latest round in the rivalry between the French and English kings. All this stuff was going on. It's just been a thing. And it under you I understand more going through the discussion this time through on the podcast than I did in the previous because Normandy is actually on French soil. So when William the Conqueror goes and conquers England, now the British king owns land on French soil. And since the time of William, that has grown to where mm-hmm. they now own even more. And so that's why they're kind of cousins. And they're besides the fact that they were always marrying each other's off all the time, there's this real tension because they were the two kings were in a structurally awkward position. Officially, the English kings were the vassals of the French kings with respect to their lands in France, officially. Again, this mostly had symbolic significance, but symbols could have huge political impact. But who wants to be a king to submit to another king? Right? So I'm king of these lands over here, but I'm this guy's vassal. So does that give that guy control over these? No, no, it's, it's just awkward. In 1200, before the papal interdict, the two kings had made a truce. And then a few months later, John got married and all hell broke loose because his bride was Isabel of Angouleme, heiress. And you know how she is. Heiress to the county of Angouleme in Aquitaine. And she'd already been betrothed to another guy who was in Aquitaine. So now John goes and marries her. But the other extraordinary thing about the marriage was that the bride was only 12. Hmm. Child marriages were not uncommon among the elite in this period, but generally the couple lived apart. That is, they didn't consummate the marriage until both parties were a bit older. But John did not observe this tradition, Mm. which was another stain on his already blemished reputation. So he steals the bride who's from France in English lands from another French dude. This is messed up. Then marries her. And so now he's just worse philip saw john's outrageous behavior as the chance of a lifetime remember philip is the king of france yeah in 1202 he summoned john to paris to account for his behavior there was no way that john could answer the summons without losing face one king can't just do another king's bidding so john refused so philip declared john a disobedient vassal and thus had the legal grounds to confiscate all of john's french lands because now he's been disobedient. He didn't come when he summoned him. So John's supporters began to desert him, and John failed to move decisively to block Philip. By 1204, Philip had seized Normandy, Maine, Anjou, and Poitou. Only Aquitaine remained the most remote and most troublesome, least remunerative. What does that mean, remunerative? You know, the one that makes the least money, the least amount of money for England. Okay. Okay. In all of the French lands. So the, all they had was the least valuable one left. All the rest of them have been taken by. Yeah. And um, so the Angevin Empire, which came up in previous discussions, was no more. That didn't exist. Philip, seizure of English continental possessions between 1204 and 1206, greatly annoyed the English barons. Okay. And now we're coming to the third conflict. First conflict was with Innocent. Second conflict was with Philip. The and now, third was with the barons. Yeah, because now these are the people under his, he for whom they are his vassal. I guess, that yeah, that would they would be his vassals. But they're angry because he's lost all of their lands, and that means they're not making as much money, that England isn't making as much money, all that stuff. 
So many of them, of these barons, were either forced to abandon their English possessions while keeping their French ones or vice versa. They're having to choose one or the other. They looked to John Lackland, that was his name, to reclaim what Philip Augustus had seized. They were wanting him to go to war and get it back. However, John was unable to respond quickly to this situation because he was embroiled in controversy over the Archbishop of Canterbury. These were going on simultaneously, okay? And so, therefore, he couldn't respond. So, John spent most of the rest of his reign trying to get those lands back. To pay for these efforts, he needed to raise enormous sums of money, which meant taxing the people of England, taxing the clergy. He even imposed heavy fines on his nobles for the smallest defensive. So, he's lost all that money-making land in France, and he needs to make even more money to go back and fight and get those lands back, so he's taxing them for everything he can think of. Um, John could also be extremely capricious and cruel to his nobles, and he quite enjoyed sleeping with their wives and daughters. This Yuck. So in this poisonous atmosphere, John tried one last time in 1214 to get back his French lands in alliance with his nephew, Otto of Germany, who was looking to become the German emperor. So they go into alliance to try to get back. Is this going to be the event? John planned to trap Philip's forces between two armies. The plan didn't work and Otto faced Philip alone and lost. John was out of money, out of allies and out of time. And not until 1213 did John, so just, it had only been, so this actually happened before this defeat with Otto. I'm, I'm melding sources. So yeah. um, the, the settling of the, of the election of Stephen Langton was in 1213. And so then he joins forces with Otto and then Otto loses and it ended all of his attempts. So now we're at the third major conflict, which is with the barons. They didn't like or trust John. Furthermore, thanks to his military military failures, they had no reason to respect him. Mm -mm. So a group of barons decided to get together to try to make him be a better king. And in the spring of 1215, with the help of Archbishop Stephen Langton, these barons created a list of demands with regard to taxation and good governance, and they took up arms to enforce those demands. Is this the event? It is. And it's called, here we go. Well, let me say this. Finally, on June 10th, 1215, the disgruntled barons met with John's representatives at Runnymede, where they held negotiations that resulted in a document called the Articles of the Barons, which contained 49 articles. This was the rough draft of the document that eventually became the Magna Carta. The Magna Carta. Have you heard of that before? I have heard of the Magna Carta. And what have you heard of the Magna Carta? What do you Don't think? Don't remember what, anything about it. The Magna Carta. Hey Wes, you got any thoughts on the Magna Carta? I've I learned it at some point, but I don't know okay. what it is. So we're going to talk about it. It is, and it'll come about as we read through this. So I I probably shouldn't say we're going to read the Magna Carta, right? No, is that what no, you're going to do no. What this document, we can see what it, well, it was just described as trying to negotiations to, uh, with, between the barons and John, trying to limit the power of the king, okay? And it gets talked about throughout history 
as this foundational document and gets credit for, and this will come up as we're reading, but I'll just say it here, um, credit for things like the foundational document for the Declaration of Independence, the foundational document for the, uh, I forget the title of it, but it's a United Nations document about human rights. Um, and so how did this thing that was written in a field in 1215 get tied all the way to that? Yeah, um, okay. June 10th, 12th, I, go I, ahead. I think I'm remembering what it may mean. Yeah, well, we have a lot of ideas about what it means. We're going to talk about... It's going to have its own card, though, isn't it? Yeah, we're going to talk about how is that legitimate or not, like what really happened there. Um, one thing that's happened recently in time compared to 1215 is June 15th of 2015 was the 800th, June 10th of 2015, was the 800th anniversary of the Magna, of the signing of the Magna Carta, right? And um, I remember this, Barack Obama went to England and he made a speech at Runnymede. And so that was a big deal. There was a lot of talk about that. In some of the documents that we're going to be dealing with, that will be mentioned. But that brought it back into current, a current memory, right? Like, what is this about? And I remember, you know, if if you were around and watching the news during that time, you'd be going, what's the big deal? What is he doing in England? What is he saying? Why is he there? Why is this happening? And so that was celebrating the 800th anniversary because, like I say, it gets credited as a foundational document. We're going to talk about Would you say that it gets credit? Well, you just said it gets credit as a foundational document. In my mind, what I'm I'm going to say this and— Correct me. Would the Magna Carta then be maybe a historical document that creates some what of a organizational contract? Like, you know, if you flippantly yeah. say, like, I'm not talking about the Magna Carta, or you're trying to you use that term to refer to a document that carries a lot of importance right. or a document and that creates structure and rules and governance. That's what it's been credited with. We're going to talk about how much it actually created and how much it didn't and where that came from and how come it gets so much credit. Well, because maybe before the Magna Carta, there wasn't a document that was... There was not. But a lot of times it's, it's credited with doing more at the time than it actually did yes. at the time. Okay? Let's be clear. But it's still very, 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 very important. Mm -hmm. And we're going to spend a good deal of time talking about that in this episode and the next. Well, about 18 minutes, I think. No, in this episode and the next. But in this episode... So we're going to spend about 18 minutes. We'll see about that. Um, I don't think it's going to take that long, but we'll see. Maybe 12. Um, so I want to go back to that. The document contains 63 clauses. On June 19th, the Barents renewed their allegiance to him. So on June 15th, the document was signed with its 63 clauses. On June 19th, the Barents renewed their allegiances to what him. What happened on June 10th? That was... The, um, when the Baron started meeting with him. And then 15th was when it was, it was signed. signed. Yes, I had that wrong. The document under discussion by the Barons provides a more specific idea as to what the Barons were so upset about. Here are a few highlights. From Clause 2 of the Magna Carta establishes the amounts that the regent was allowed to tax his subject on specific occasions. John had been trying to trying to up what is essentially a death tax. For example, he required noblemen to pay, he 
a particular nobleman named Roger to pay 4,500 pounds to succeed his father's lands, a huge sum of money. So he was, he was upping the amount that you had to pay just to inherit what was left to you, okay? Clauses 3 through 6 deal with minor heirs. John was selling rights and wardship over young orphaned heirs and heiresses to the highest bidder. People who often ruined the inheritance for the ward by exploiting the states for their own gain. So hiring people to be the what would be the thing, uh, the guardian of that person by whoever would pay the most money, not who was going to take care of the person. And they were taking advantage of that. Okay. Um, Which probably needed to be written down and created a rule well, well, but, that, but but historically like i don't know no, why that... we'll see where we're going with that okay the point is yes all of this was things that need i mean there's 69 clauses there's a lot to write down but you also, said 63 63 also the king had the right to give heirs in marriage again to the highest bidder and often against the wishes of the immediate family clauses seven through eight deal with widows john was also arranging marriages for widows who might have come into profitable estates very often these arranged marriages went against the will of the widows and it wasn't just he's arranging them, he was selling them, you know, like I'll, you pay me this and I'll make sure you can marry her and have this estate, right? Clause 12 deals with the issue of um, what tenant, what feudal tenants owed the king instead of military service and how that was worked out. And it just goes on and on. Um, after 1215, every time someone pointed to the values described in the Magna Carta as an inspiration, the significance of the moment of the initial agreement was enlarged and enhanced until eventually the barons at Runnymede had become mythologized as freedom fighters yearning to break free from the yoke of the crown. However, they wanted no such thing. They wanted their king to rule properly and to stop taxing them excessively. Now, this quote, what I'm reading right here, is coming from another Wondrium lecture entitled, um, okay, I'm not having it right here. I'll come back and find it in a minute. Oh, Years That Changed History, 1215. And this uh, lecturer is Dorsey Armstrong, okay? So they just wanted them to quit being taxed excessively uh striking a blow for human rights was not on their minds in fact some of them would have been horrified at the idea that anything in the document suggested that an earl might have something in common with a blacksmith or a knight or a farmer because what comes out of that is this idea of equal human rights or of inalienable human rights that kind of thing and we're going to Say, okay, well, then how did we get that idea? Because the roots of it are there. But what we want to do is say, well, since the roots are there, that's what they were about. No, that's not what they're about. And they weren't that open-minded yet, but they were planning the well, seed. Well, can I ask? Yeah. Why? You seem to be passionate about defining that it was not about that. It, it, you, you just seem to be saying, no, 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 no. Let's be clear about what it is. Is there, what's, the, what's behind that debate? Like, why can't it be? Well, that. it's the same argument, first of all, it's the same argument that we make about any point in history. We take something and we take what it means to us now, and then we put that same meaning on what it meant 800 years ago. Kind of like the right to bear arms. That's the first thing that comes to mind. Well, maybe there is the whole discussion say, of what that well, means. Well, they were talking. They were talking exactly. about musket rifles. They weren't talking about AR. Right, they? right. And so, somewhat like that. The point being that we think when we hear, hmm, we take 
how we view, like, say, the way women should be treated. And we judge people 700 years ago for not treating women the way that we believe women should be treated now. When we need to look at, I'm not saying what they were doing was correct. I'm saying we need to look at the times they lived in and maybe what they were doing was advanced for their time. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But not where we are today. So there were definitely the roots of these things there, but I want us to understand the historical context, what they were going about. I don't want us to think, oh, since 1215, we've known that all people were equal, and that was accepted everywhere in a society, and everybody was cool with that, and it was put into law in 1215. We're going to look at what was no, actually put into say, law. No, this is what was put into law in 1215. It may have led to that. It did lead to that, and we're going to show how. Okay. Okay. Um, in, in that kind of thing. Okay. Still, the Magna Carta, Carta did inspire British activists, American settlers, French rebels, and many, many more. In, for, in 1948, the United Nations adopted a Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which contains echoes of the Magna Carta. Surprisingly, in present-day England, only three clauses of the original 63 found in the Magna Carta remain. These include Clause 1, which affirmed the independence of the church in England and the freedoms it should enjoy. And that's important to remember. We're going to come back and talk about Clause 1 a lot in the next episode. Um, clause 13 also remains, even though it is a vague, it's as vague as ever in asserting that the city of London should enjoy, quote, all its ancient rights and privileges. I'm surprised about that. Most famously and maybe most reassuringly, however, is the fact that Clause 39 remains law to this day. No, now, this was in Clause 39. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned or strips of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way, nor will we proceed with force against him or send others to do so except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. That is a big deal. That yeah, whole thing right that there is, is a big deal. because that sounds pretty much... Yeah, and that I think what she's quoting is the way it reads today, but we're going to go back and talk about how it read then and how it's not that far off, okay? After swearing to the Magna Carta, John turned right around and appealed to Pope Innocent III. So like within three months, I think it was, he asked Innocent to be absolved from his oath, um, which was the oath to the barons, and Innocent agreed. Of course, an oath sworn under duress is invalid under canon law, so the Pope agreed. So with papal backing, John went on the offensive again, and all of that went away. But things go back and forth, and then over the course of John's son's reign, who is Henry III, it's reinstituted and beefed up. Okay, so there's a brief period in there where it goes away, but it comes back, and then I think we're going to see how it's, I, I think I've got in these notes how it's read over and over again. Um Let's see. So John's reign is judged by most historians as a failure. You won't find many people that do that. Um, I'm reading down here. This is kind of a summary of what we've already said. So I'm trying to get through. Uh, so we're what you're doing is you're kind of wrapping up what you wanted to get out of John and right i want to say just a little bit more about the magna carta the magna carta can as we said it had 63 clauses and it imposed restrictions on the king and enforced him to do things that he would have preferred not to do such as abolish certain unpopular popular royal taxes um and promise to 
reduced the amount of land that was off limits to most of his subjects. He had taken more and more royal forest and had not allowed anybody else to use it or hunt in it or take the trees from it. So that was really cutting back on their income and freedom Pardon in that pun. way. Pardon yeah. the pun. Um, yeah. More important, Magna Carta limited the ability of kings to act arbitrarily, especially in matters of judicial procedure. It forced kings to follow written law when judging crimes. We're going to spend, and that was a big newbie. And then it, in Article 39 states, no free man shall be arrested or imprisoned or deprived of his property or outlawed or exiled in any way destroyed except by judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. In this sense, it is true that Magna Carta started England down the path toward constitutional monarchy. So a lot of times this is there's a there's a clause in there that talks about being subject to a panel of 25 barons that would have to meet if the if the king's going to make major changes. That never really came about in that way, but it was definitely the seeds of what became parliament. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so it did start. It down England down the path toward a constitutional monarchy. John himself attempted to renounce Magna Carta, but he died in 1216, and his successors were more willing to accept the document. And I don't have, I thought I had it in my notes here, but I don't. But there's a, and it might come up when we're talking next week, but I'm pretty sure I know that it became a tradition for it, for the Magna Carta to be reread year after year after year and proclaimed, you know, to the people. And, it became more and more the law as time went on rather than less, particularly mostly in the 17th century is when it really comes blaring back. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. I mean, 400 years, 500 yeah. years. So what we're going to talk about next time is. Can I make a comment before you say that? Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to forget to talk to say something. So. Has to do with the barons. So okay, so can... hang on for a minute and let me say this. We're going to go into just like any idea is not a brand new idea. It has roots that led to like maybe a new combination. So what led to this? Where did these barons get this idea for? Okay, we're going to make a list of how we're going to hold. That's the what king, I was just about to say. King accountable. That's what we're going to talk about next week. Well, that's it's just what where I was about these to ideas ask. come from. And I'll say it now. My 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 thought was, the barons. Do we know who they were? Do we know? Yeah, well, you how, could how look them up. Their... I don't know their names right here. I think it's twenty five. Twenty five. And, and it may have been more, but I. So I let's know just say there's twenty five barons that are like we got to approach King John, and we got to do something and, different. And the other thing that's not here that I thought it's it'll come out next week are the details of how that about. I mean, they actually like were pretty much had him locked out of London. They took over London and said, you can't come back. I would like... It was I, like a civil war. I would like a screenplay. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it exists. On these barons getting together and ultimately create the Magna Carta. We're going we're gonna to learn a lot about that next time. Yep. Well, is it going to be exciting? Is it going to be like, you know, a... Uh, it's not going to be a screenplay, A Christopher Frank. Nolan experience? It won't be that good. No. Well... It needs to be that good. Sorry. And I'd like for it to, you know, I'd like for, what's his name, James Cameron, to make a movie out of it. Okay. Um, what else we got? Yeah, that's all I got on We're the content. Up. We're going to go. Yeah, I'm looking forward to next time talking about that. We're going to get together in a couple oh, of weeks. Yes, and I was going to tell you that this was a, is there some other wrap up? Mm -mm. Okay. So Magna Carta, 
Magna Carta under John Lackland. And he got called Lackland because he lacked land. He lost all their land in That's really why France. they called him Lackland? Uh, yes. Well, yeah. there's some jokes there. He was I could come up with some dude. names for people now. So I was just going to say this. You talked about what you were watching. I started watching Queen Charlotte on Netflix last night. And I just about went and got my charts out. Queen Charlotte. Yeah, so it's a Bridgerton spinoff. So Bridgerton is stories. and Oh, yeah. I think the, the picture is the girl with the big hair that's making the crown. Yeah, yeah. And so yeah. she's, uh, so this is the backstory. Queen Charlotte is the queen of England during the Bridgerton series, which is the re- Regency period. So there legitimately was a Queen Charlotte legitimately married to King George during the Regency period of history. Okay. Which is around the time of the um, Revolutionary War. Okay. Around in that period, give or take. So this is the backstory of her, how she became queen and her relationship with him and all that. They end up having 15 children, 13, which survived to adulthood. Okay. So I watched the first couple episodes and I wanted to go get out my chart because of all these kids and all the stuff that was going. Anyway, it was fun. It's a good, I've enjoyed the first two episodes a lot. Cool. So wanted to Um, throw that out there. I'm going to finish up my latest episode i've got to the fourth episode of my missing there's only four episodes and i uh, only got half of the last episode left i think maybe i'll finish that up tonight i don't know well we're glad y'all came and listened to episode 96 i enjoyed it and just like you're going to class we will see you Next week at the classroom. Something fun. Frank will have a fun. We'll talk about something fun. Be sure to bring something fun to talk about at the beginning of class next week. Okay. All right. Bye. This has been History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast. Please rate and review, subscribe, or follow wherever you stream your podcasts. You may also contact us and comment at onethingonly.org. Just click on the History Through the Eyes of Faith podcast tab. You can also support this podcast by checking the link to our Kofi site in our bio. Thanks for listening.